I refer to it as the Ramones of the programming languages, you know, setting the beat in the background. <laughs> All the features, new languages now are picking up. Hopefully it has more chords than the Ramones. <laughs> Not really. It's, it's basic and simple, but it's got the right chords. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your tests pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrobes. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 208 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Wait, no, Tennessee. Coraline Ada Emke. Good morning, listeners. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to put a quick reminder out. We have the schedule mostly finalized for Ruby Remote Comp. So if you want to come and listen to some great speakers, including some of the people on this show, go to rubyremoteconf.com and sign up. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Francesco Cesarini. Hi there, from London, England. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, I'm Francesco, um, technical director and founder of Erlang Solutions. Uh, we've been working with Erlang since 1994, and have co-authored two of the O'Reilly books around Erlang as well. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know Erlang was been around that long. Actually, I think I did, but it, it seemed to kind of get people seem to know more about it over the last maybe you know five or ten years is when I really started to hear about it. Yes, it's uh, with multi-core and yeah, with the types of problems you know we're solving today. I think it's been getting more and more attention. Well, it also it it also started out in house and then was open sourced. Is that correct? Yes, but uh, the open source started in, um, yeah, it was open source in 1998. So it was still when, you know, people didn't really know what open source was. But it got open source without any budget, without any, you know, promotional material and PR. So it's kind mm -hmm. of slowly spread organically. 
And I think it started picking up and uh, ending up on everyone's radar around 2006 with multi-core. And then, uh, you know, with Joe Armstrong's book, and then mine came out in 2009. And, you know, from there, you know, it's been more and more people have been hearing about it. And it's been, you know, being used in, well, massively scalable full-tolerance systems. Francesco, you talked about multi-core. What exactly is that? Well, the ability for, you know, the virtual machine to you know, fully utilize all of the cores so, you know, you, you, run, you run a program which on a machine with a single core, and you then, you know, take the same Erlang program and running on a machine with four or eight or 16 cores, it's going to run, you know, eight or 16 times faster. And, you know, and that has to do with some of the features in Erlang, which, you know, makes the scalability on multi-core architectures much easier. Now, at a low level, Erlang handles that very differently from just about any other programming languages. Can you... Fill us in on, on some of the details there. I'm not sure if it handles it differently. It's well, it, I, I guess as yeah. compared to like um, the typical threading model that most people think of, like exactly. OS threads. Exactly. So what we've got in Erlang is lightweight concurrency, and that means that it, the virtual machine is in effect an operating system on top of the operating system, and it handles its own processes. Uh, we call them lightweight processes. And so a VM is able to handle millions of, of processes. It, they take you know, sub-microseconds to create and use up a very little memory. Yeah, isn't it like, and, 300, like 304 words or something like that per... Exactly. Something very, very little. Uh, yes, exactly. It's something in that space. But obviously, you know, as they do more things and they need more memory, it gets allocated. But the initial footprint is very, very small. And what differs with Erlang is it's based on the actor model. Uh, so processes uh, do not share memory, and they communicate with each other through message passing. So message passing, which is asynchronous. And you know, the biggest challenge to scaling on multi-core architecture is memory lock contention. And so by making sure that there is no shared memory, you get rid of the memory lock contention, and you get almost linear scalability. So, you know, it simplifies the problem and, you know, it allows those working on the VM to then focus on the more difficult things, which are internal locks, uh, looking at the schedulers, looking at, you know, your, your various, um, your various approaches, which you have today in scaling. Where does Erlang come from? Why, why was it created this way? So it was invented back in the mid 80s. The computer science lab laboratory at Ericsson, so you know, the telco infrastructure provider, were trying to figure out how to program the next generation of telecom switches. And they, they tried and prototyped uh, finite state machines and, and telecom applications with most of the prevailing languages which were available at the time. And with most of the languages which were available at the time. And you know, they quickly came to the conclusion that you know, there were a lot of great features in these languages but there was no one language which had all of the features they required. And if you think of it, the problems they were trying to solve were you know, the problems of systems which were uh, distributed. They were massively concurrent. You know, that means you've got thousands of phone calls going on at the same time. They had to behave in a predictable fashion under extreme loads. So at New Year's Eve, when everyone used to call each other, you'd pick up the phone, you'd still expect to hear the tutu on the other end. And they had to be full tolerant. So even in the case of disasters, you still had to be able to dial 999. So this was the type of problem they were trying to solve. And 
they came to the conclusion after you know, extensive prototyping that you know the, the solution to this problem was a programming language. So they didn't set out to invent the programming language. It just happened to be the solution. And with the internet coming about, I think you know a lot of the problems I've described are very similar to what we're seeing today. You know, think of you know mobile apps, think of the Internet of Things, even think of the web. You know, we usually joke that uh, you know Erlang predates the web, even though it was designed for the web. <laughs> what initially attracted you to Erlang? So I was in uh, I was studying in university. It was a parallel computing course, and you know, the teacher comes in and her holds up the first edition of the Erlang book and said, read it, these are the exercises, do them. And then off he went and started describing the horrors of parallel computing, so deadlocks, semaphores, race conditions, and yeah, pretty much we were, we were young and impressionable and got scared at what he was saying. And we started working on the exercise, uh, and it was a simulated world. We had carrot patches growing in this world, and then we had rabbits going around eating the carrots. And if a rabbit ate a lot of carrots, he would split in two, and you'd have two rabbits. And if he didn't eat enough carrots, he would run out of energy and die. Then you had wolves roaming this virtual world, and wolves would go out hunting for rabbits, and if they found a rabbit, they'd eat it. And there was also a bit of communication in between, you know, the, 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 the rabbits. If a rabbit found a rabbit patch, it would broadcast it to the rabbits within its vicinity. And the same with the wolves. If the wolves found a rabbit, uh, they would broadcast to the other wolves. And rabbits seeing wolves would start, you know, telling each other and start running away. And the way we designed it was that every rabbit was a, an airline process. Every wolf was an airline process. Every carrot patch was an airline process. It was a really fun exercise. It took me about 40 hours to complete. And didn't think much about it. I completed exercises, handed them in. And airline at the time was one of about 10 programming languages we had to use in our four years uh, it took to take the degree. Until a few months later, when we were studying AFIL, which was an object-oriented language, so we were studying object-oriented programming, and we were given a, the exact same exercise. And you know, despite me having already solved that, that exercise once, and despite working with a classmate, it ended up taking us 60 hours to finish that exercise. So you know, three times the, the time it took us to do the original problem. And at that point, you know, that, that's when I realized, you know, right tool for the job. There is always a right tool for the job, which makes you much more productive. And that's at that point, um, you know, soon after I picked up the phone, cold called Joe Armstrong at the computer science lab and asked if he had any internships open. Uh, two weeks later, I went down for an interview and have never looked back. So, you know, th that, that's how I got into Erlang. So building a company around a language seems a little bit interesting to me. What's kind of the focus there? I mean, are you consulting or are you more focused on the language and the community around it? So, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. It's, I, I agree. It's pretty unusual to, you know, build a company around, uh, around a programming language, especially a programming language we don't own or control. Because still today, Ericsson has a team of about 20 people working on the VM and working on the libraries. And you know, we work very closely with them. And obviously, you know, influence them, but we, we, we don't have the exact the direct control. And what happened was we started off as, well, it started off as me, uh, doing consulting. And from there, we moved on and started providing training courses. And soon after that, we started doing in-house systems development. And, you know, before we know it, we were providing support 
and we then started working on our own products internally. So we have today, you know, Mongoose AM, which is an instant messaging stack uh, being used, you know, widely, well, uh, for online chat uh, by a lot of high-profile customers. We've got Wombat, which is an operation and maintenance tool, and we're also resellers of React, the NoSQL database. So as a consultancy and, you know, and a body shop, you know, selling hours, we're slowly making the migration over to a product company. Obviously, you know, still doing yeah, a lot of the consultancy and a lot of what's generating the revenue. As a split, I would say we're probably, you know, 30% products today, you know, 70% consultancy and professional services. And yeah, we are focused on the community. We run a lot of events and, you know, where possible, we try to let others run the events, but help them from behind the scenes. Uh, so I think some of the largest events we run is the Erlang User Conference. Um, Ericsson asked us to take it over back in uh, 2009, and it attracts about 350 people. We run the Erlang Factory in San Francisco, which is, well, the largest Erlang event in the U.S., and that attracts about 250 people. And then we've got a lot of uh, smaller Erlang Factory lights, and more recently we started Code Mesh in London, which is you know focused on distributed and functional programming where my heart has been yeah, for quite a while now. What are some of the more interesting projects you've done through Erlang Solutions? Oh, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, I think if you go back in time, every other year usually we managed to get a project which allowed us to double in size. Uh, from my end, I think the most exciting ones were in the very early days um i worked on um t-mobile's uh sms gateway so it was a gateway which was used for all inbound and outbound uh sms's so all the short codes all of the tv voting uh all went through this gateway and it was when it went live one of the fastest sms gateways out there you hand, handling you know more sms than what the network could actually carry and that was really good fun, you know, taking over proof of concept and, you know, getting it production ready. More recently, you know, fast forward a few years, we built a massively scalable instant messaging gateway. This was before smartphones. So this was 2008, 2009. Uh, you still had a few Linux phones, but most of the phones were very static. And what we did is a gateway which allowed users to connect to um, instant messaging providers such as AOL, AIM, ICQ, Google Talk, MS the MSN network, which you know, existed at the time. And at its peak, it carried about 30% of all of Microsoft's wireless instant messaging traffic. And that was a fixed-price project of about eight man-years and it was just a race against time to go live. And yeah, that was, you don't get to experience that many projects like that where, where it's, you know, speed to market is critical. Else, you know, the competition will overtake you. And it was highly optimized for mobile. You know, so it was incredibly, there was a lot of lessons learned, which we're still applying today over, you know, battery life, reducing uh, loads, reducing the data you transfer. And, well, more recently, we've been trying to package all of the lessons we've learned in ensuring your systems are up all the time. So looking at preemptive support, monitoring, metrics, and alarming into a generic product we're calling Wombat. And that's been a real fun product to work on as well. So, yeah, it, it's never dull. Yeah? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think we've worked from 
Yeah, we worked with WhatsApp even before they had their first office, uh, you know, helping them scale. We've worked with um, yeah, everything from, you know, single one-man band startups all over the way to, you know, Fortune 100 companies. I want to hear a little more about the language. Uh, of course, this is a Ruby show, but we're very big on being polyglot and learning from other languages. And yesterday I, I, um, I put out a little screencast to show some people some of the power of the, the Pharaoh small talk uh, environment. Uh, and I was particularly focusing on things that would like the average Ruby programmer would look at and it would just like blow them away. Like they don't have anything like this in Ruby. And I actually had somebody comment and say that they were in their office and they actually yelled, no way at the screen. I'm curious so, if you wanted to show someone like a Ruby programmer, something, you know, about Erlang that's going to melt their face. Is there something that, is there some example that you would show them? Absolutely. You know, first of all, uh, the concurrency model, uh, just on a, on a laptop, you know, I could probably create about, you know, 10 million processes, which each send a message to each other, uh, receive the message and terminate. And it would take a couple of seconds to create them all and run, and run that script. The debugging, uh, you're able to turn on, you know, debugging on local functions and global functions without trace compiling your code. And you're also able wait, to... Wait, 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 what? You can, yeah. you can turn on debugging without recompiling? Yes. So what you do is it, it runs on a VM. It runs on bytecode. So you want to go in and say, I want to trace, I want to trace for all of the lists, code, and sort functions. Every time I call list, code, and sort, I want a trace event generated for it. And you're, you're basically able to go in and troubleshoot live systems. So you do this on, on production? Absolutely. You do it on production. You can do it in test plants. And it's incredibly powerful, incredibly dangerous um, as well, because <laughs> you, you go in and start tracing a function, which you know, is called all the time. You end up getting so much I.O. in your shell that you end up killing uh, the whole virtual machine. I've actually managed to sync a whole mobile data network uh, by being careless with, with, <laughs> with, the, with, with the tracer. Oops. <laughs> and caused a mi minor outage. I was, yeah, exactly. That was what I said. Oops. And the, the support so guys. So that was you. Yes, the support guys were sitting probably three, four desks behind me, and I was like, start it again, start it again. And you'd hear them say, did you see that? Yeah, yeah, let me retry. And I managed to restart that particular sync system I just sunk. And uh, no, it seems to work. Oh, it must have been a firewall. And yeah, they blamed it you on know, the system administrators, which they always did. So I, I got away <laughs> with it that time around. But it's it's incredibly powerful. And, and you know, being able to trace in a live environment really cuts down the turnaround time to locating bugs and solving them. You can and do more than trace, right? You can deploy code? Yes. So uh, you're also able to do live upgrades in real time. So, And this actually comes from Smalltalk. It's, it's an idea they took from Smalltalk, where you're running a version of the module, and at any one time, your virtual machine can have two versions of the module. You load in the new version of the module, and you then do what we call a fully qualified function call, which basically appends the, the module name to the function name. And every time you do a fully qualified function call, you check, am I running the latest version of the code? No, you're not. The pointer is swapped from the old version to the new version of the code. So retaining your process, retaining its state, retaining all the variable values, you're running your updated version, your updated code. 
And you know, this was a requirement with telecom systems where um, you had to upgrade your switches, your phone switches, without taking them down. You, you needed to have you know, five nines availability, including upgrades. So, you know, shutting down the switches was not an option. So, you know, live code upgrade is another well, really, really cool feature, which um, I think you know, a lot of people in the Ruby world are, are very interested in. And it's something available in Elixir as well. And I want to dig into that a little bit because yeah. um, I've experienced this a little bit. And, and there are some details there that you don't think about until you actually start trying to do it. Like in Ruby... Uh, we think about when we think about live updating something, some one of the, the issues that you can run into is, for instance, if you're upgrading to a new version of a class that actually uses a different set of instance variables or where an instance variable has been renamed and you're not throwing out old objects and just creating new objects, then you could have stuff blow up because the code is expecting a different instance variable to exist. Um, but you actually have some solutions for that in this airline system, right? Th that is correct. So we airline comes with something called OTP which provides the framework which we use to do software upgrades. So you've got the basics, you know, semantics, which are part of the language, but I've simplified it. And as you say, you know, I've made it appear like it's very simple. The truth is, you know, software upgrades are not for the faint of heart. Uh, if, you, if you think of it, you need to change, you might change the state of your process. You might change APIs you're calling. You might change the actual protocol used by processes when communicating with each other. And, you're doing it on a single node, what happens if you start doing it in a distributed environment as well? So it's not as easy as it sounds, but there are frameworks which uh, allow you to test and, and do your upgrades in a controlled way. So it's not just done manually. But you know, the key to it is actually testing, 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 and making sure that you know, whatever you've done is backward compatible and right. that nothing goes up. And but you're, you're, you're able to do effectively almost like a, like we, we think a lot about database migrations in Ruby and Rails applications, but you can yes. almost, you're effectively doing process migrations. Process or thread, yeah, it, the Ruby equivalent would be a thread migration. That's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in that migration, yeah, you might also go in and upgrade your database and update your database, your functions, you know, to, to traverse it, you know, in case the schema changes. And, you know, to, to, to add to that, you know, it's, Incredibly powerful, but you know it's useful if you've you know you need to do an upgrade to you know a product you've shipped in tens of thousands of instances, you know. So a company like Ericsson who might have a team of a hundred airline developers working on a particular project, the cost of adding four or five developers just to focus on software upgrade is not an issue. But if you're then dealing with you know if you're a startup in Silicon Valley pumping out code and you know trying to get users but not generating any revenue. It doesn't always make sense to do live upgrades. You know, the cost you know, of doing it might be too high. So all you do is you take down your system and you restart it. And in most cases, you know, that will also work. So you know, it depends. You, know, you need to do an analysis and see if it's worthwhile the investment or not. But the infrastructure is there and the tool chain you know, to do it is there as well. And another thing which I think is pretty cool in Airline is you know, something called OTP, which... What OTP does, it gives you a framework which describes the architecture of a single node. So you're asking about things blowing up. What we do is we put processes, or, or, or as we call them, behaviors, under a supervision tree. You know, behaviors you know, could be a finite state machines. They could be event handlers or um, you know, client servers. And they're all monitored by a supervisor. And if a process terminates uh, or crashes, 
the supervisor is configured you know to take a certain number of actions which could be you know, restart the process or do nothing or you know terminate all the processes in the subtree and restart them or if the supervisor realizes that you know it has you know handled five crashes in the last minute comes to the relation okay i can't handle this issue because um, i'm i'm getting cyclic restarts here let me terminate myself and see if my supervisor you know can handle it and so you have a system of escalation where you know the higher up you go in the supervision hierarchy the more parts of your system you restart yeah so it's it's a way of trying to isolate error handling and you know if the isolation doesn't work and you still have that issue you escalate and you try to restart you know a larger part and in the end it reaches you know the top level supervisor and if that terminates your whole node goes down and then gets restarted in ruby and and other o languages we talk about circuit breaker patterns for stuff like that is that is that something that airliners have have given a lot of thought to so the thought has been put into the error handling semantics of the language i think that's really where and the error handling semantics in language is very easy you've got two processes and two processes can monitor each other mm-hmm. through through links or monitors links are bidirectional monitors are unidirectional and if a process terminates uh, the process which you're linked to will receive an exit signal and based on the exit signal it, it can decide what to do so that's it that's all there is to it and using you know the simple semantics you build much more complex you know, frameworks so i suspect the circuit breaker is more like realizing that you've got an issue and i think it's like one, probably th- one possible semantic that you could that you yeah. can use like you were talking about realizing that a process has gone down five times in a row and handling that differently and that's that's really important because you know when when i think when i and and maybe other people hear about oh let it crash and then restart it we immediately th- start thinking about infinite restart loops but it's interesting uh you know you're talking about you're talking about having having supervisors that have a bit more intelligence than that that's correct yes uh so there's supervisors which will by the way it's a library module so it will behave the same irrespective you know of what your system does so you know the, the intelligence there actually boils down to how many restarts will you allow you know per minute before terminating when a process terminates what do you do with all the other uh, processes in your in your supervision to you terminate them all you only terminate the process which was started after the process which was terminated or do you do nothing you just restart this process which terminated and finally you know, when do you as a supervisor terminate yourself and a- escalate it to your top level supervisor and so what this does is it allows a programmer to only program for the correct case and what this means is that they're not going in and putting any funny error handling in the code trying to cater for you know if your process crashes it crashes for two reasons either you, your your state is corrupt or there's a bug in your code in airline what you do is you program for the correct case uh, you avoid you know putting error handling in your code unless it's expected error handling so if a user types something in the shell and you need to parse it and what the type is incorrect and you return an error message to a user you know that's part of the semantics of your program but if you have is there's a bug in your code or your state gets corrupted you don't really know what to handle and how to do it because a you don't know what the bug is and b you don't know how your state got corrupted so in what airlink programmers are encouraged to do is instead of trying to handle these special cases let your process fail so let it terminate and you know, let your supervisor deal with it instead 
And so this actually reduces the complexity of the code uh, greatly. It reduces it in that all of the error handling code has actually moved to a library module. And you know, studies they've done where they've rewritten C++ code over to Erlang, you know, they went in and counted every single line of C++ code and looked at what each line did. The error handling in the C++ code was about 25% of the whole code base. Uh, the equivalent in the Erlang program was about 1%. So just you know, with the let it crash approach, you, you wipe out you know, 25% of your code. So an it's, incredibly powerful semantics and construct, yeah. That's uh, definitely a pretty radical approach to error handling and a pretty compelling feature. So aside from the actor and supervisor sort of patterns, what are some of the other core metaphors or patterns in Erlang? So, well, we've got the OTP behavior, so we've talked about the supervisor. Another very common pattern is the client-server behavior. And the client-server behavior you know, allow, you know, is a library module which um, handles all of the tricky you know, parts of concurrency, but it does so behind the scenes. So you can very, very easily you know, go in and you know, start sending messages without having to worry about your server crashing, for example. You send a message to your server, and the server has crashed before you send the message or it has crashed when it's waiting you know, to handle your message or even when it's handling the message. All of this is handled you know, behind the scenes. So concurrent programming tends to get tricky. And you know, what these patterns do is try to hide all of the complexity of, con of the concurrency. Uh, another you know, very common pattern is the event handler. You know, imagine you're actually, you need to log uh, and you might want to log things to file or in certain cases, you know, filter through the logs and send out an SMS. It's a behavior which allows you to hook uh, modules, and every time you, you send it a request, it will apply you know, a particular functions in those modules. So one module could go in and you know, log everything to file, the other could send SMS, and you can add and remove these, uh, we call them event handlers, uh, in runtime as well. So... And then finally, you've got finite state machines, and uh, you know it's a library module which allows you to very efficiently, with very little code, implement your own finite state machines as well. And once again, what they've done is they leave all of the generic code to the developers. Sorry, all of the generic code uh, is written in the library module, and the only thing the, code, the, the developers need to think about is the specific code. So it's the whole principle, I think, the most common pattern, the pattern of all patterns is you know, taking your process code and dividing it into generic code and into specific code. The generic code is given to you. All you need to worry about is the specific code. So if somebody decides, oh, my goodness, this is something that I definitely need to go and try out, uh, how do people get started with Erlang? So you know, one thing, starting with Erlang is very different from you know, working with most languages. Tool chains are different, ways of thinking and reasoning are different. And what I would suggest is, you know, the best way to start off is probably um, Joe Armstrong's book called Programming Erlang. And Joe is you know, very enthusiastic. And what he does is he does a great job on explaining why you should be using Erlang and you know, giving you a very good high-level overview over you know, a lot of ideas and features and, and the philosophy behind it. And once you're comfortable with that, there's actually a MOOC right now with the University of Kent, which is being trialed and which I you know, warmly recommend people to sign up with. It's uh, Simon Thompson, Joe Armstrong and I, uh, we've gone in and recorded um, some master classes and that's a great way to get into it. 
And another just yeah, to clarify, and, MOOC yeah. is a massively online, open online oh, open, oh, class. Yeah, anyway, it's a big class online that you can go take. Exactly, and it's done by universities, uh, which and and they usually open up the course material you know, to a much wider audience. And you know, they're doing the trials right now, getting feedback, which will go back into the real MOOC when it goes live in a few months. And from there, I'd also recommend there's a great online resource called Learn You Some Airline, which Fred Hebert wrote. And it's, it's a great website. And if you like it, you know, feel free to buy the book as well. And at that point, when you're ready to do some harder stuff, I would recommend uh, Designing for Scalability with Airline OTP, which is a book I'm currently writing with Steve Binovsky. And what we're doing here is looking at, you know, what is it you need to think about when designing for massive scale and designing for fault tolerance, you know, so you want to write a system which, you know, will scale you know, to millions of simultaneous users and never go down, you know, what are the approaches, what is the philosophy you need to, you need to take, and how do you tackle it? I'm surprised you didn't mention your, uh, your book, uh, Airline Programming. Oh, Airline Programming as well, yes, that's as, just as good as well. I, um, I wrote it together with Simon Thompson. And, and, and yeah, it can be used in parallel with uh, Joe Armstrong's book and Fred Bear Learn You Some Airline. All the books, all the airline books out there actually are very complementary of each other. It's been a while since we wrote it, but yeah, it's just as valid as well. Um, what we do, which the others don't maybe, is go very much into the way you need to start thinking concurrently. If you're working with a system which has you know, millions of processes, the approach you need to take is usually slightly different. And I'd say, you know, there, there are three major hurdles to, to learning Erlang, which, which we regularly see. The first is that of understanding tail recursion and using it optimally and pattern matching. So these are, you know, features which come from functional programming. The second hurdle is understanding concurrency and being able to think and reason concurrently. So ensuring that you actually have a process for every truly concurrent activity in your system and instead of, you know, serializing everything through a process. And then the third hurdle is understanding the fault tolerance and the error handling and the philosophy behind it. So it's a slightly different way of thinking and reasoning to what you might be used to, but it really helps. And even if you don't do Erlang on a daily basis, learning to think and reason that way will make you a better programmer no matter what technologies you use. Absolutely. That sounds really fascinating, especially the book about what you need to think about when you're programming for 100% or as close as you can get to 100% uptime. Francesco, I don't know how much time you've spent on Elixir, but do you know whether learning Elixir will have the same effect as far as teaching you about tail recursion and pattern matching and concurrency and error handling? I've not had enough time as I'd like to spend with Elixir, but I actually love what I'm seeing. and. What uh, Jose is doing is, you know, creating a much easier path you know, for especially Ruby programmers to migrate, you know, from Ruby to Elixir. So it makes, yeah, it, he's making Erlang much more approachable in that he's providing a much more modern, you know, tool chain around it. But all of the key concepts in Erlang are in there as well. To be clear, Elixir is another programming language that compiles to Erlang, right? That is correct. So it's taken a lot of the great features from Erlang and some good ideas also from Clojure, uh, some macros from Clojure with a Ruby-like syntax. And you know, a lot of work is being done around the package manager and the whole tool chains as well. 
So in the yeah. Rails world, there's been a lot of interest in taking apart monoliths and breaking them down into services. And oftentimes, this is taken as an opportunity for some resume-driven development with teams applying different languages for different services. How do you see Erlang fitting into a sort of polyglot architecture? It's always been part of a polyglot architecture. I think uh, you'll see most Erlang de uh, developers advocating for the right tool for the job. And in many, many occasions, you know, Erlang has actually been in the middle of it all as it acts as the glue you use to integrate all of these different languages together. So, um, you know, it's an ideal language, you know, which will act as, you know, just take a messaging bus, you know, RabbitMQ is, you know, one of the most used Erlang open source applications out there. It's an AMQP messaging bus and, uh, you know, being used by probably most Fortune 100 companies. And all it does, it well enables and facilitates the whole you know, the whole concept of publish, subscribe, and service-oriented architectures. I didn't realize that RabbitMQ is Erlang. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it is. Yes, another very well-known you know, messaging app is you know, both eJabberD and MongooseIM, which are now well once again they're not maybe tying different programming languages together, but they're tying the internet together. As you know, we're seeing an increased adoption of XMPP around the Internet of Things. You know, you'll also have MQTT, and you, you have a lot of messaging buses, a lot of proprietary ones as well, which have been written out there. You mentioned Wombat as a product that your company's working on. Is that specific to Erlang? Currently, it is, yes. So we were working on a lot of different Erlang projects, and what we realized is that we were solving the same problems time after time, and it was the problems of you know, monitoring, the problems of preemptive support, and once issues had occurred, you know, the whole problem of going back and having enough visibility, you know, to try to figure out what led up to the outage, you know, fix it and ensure it wouldn't happen again. And so what we started doing as part of a research project was, you know, put together all of this code into a generic Erlang node. And what this node does is it connects itself to an Erlang node and then goes out and does an auto discovery of all the nodes in the cluster and which Wombat then connects to. And once Wombat's connected to it, it goes in and actually discovers what application, what libraries you're running in your virtual machine. And if certain libraries are supported, it injects code and starts pulling back metrics uh, alarms and logs for these particular libraries. And it will work just out of the box, you know, without having to do anything with your code. So you just develop your code as you would, or you could have had code which has been in production for a few years. And yeah, and it, you can just yeah, transparently just connect to it and then all of a sudden start plotting different memory usages in real time. You can start, you know, getting data on the latency of your HTTP requests. And you know, very soon you'll also be able to start tracing certain you know, certain function calls as well. But it's very Erlang specific, and it was possible because of the whole dynamic code uploading nature we've got in Erlang, where you know, we're able to go in and inject agents' codes and get agents to start running in the Erlang VM. There are plans, you know, to make it widely available for more, you know, for other programming languages. But we first want to get it, you know, one hundred percent right for Erlang and Elixir. Wow, that sounds really cool. Now, you've talked a lot about some of the things that Erlang is really good for. Are there particular applications or types of things that you wouldn't want to build in Erlang? Absolutely. So Erlang was invented for a specific type of problem, and yeah, there were embedded systems, massively scalable, soft real-time. What it's not good at are things such as number crunching, and you know, usually problems we refer to as you know parallelism or parallel problems. Uh, so video encoding, analysis of complex data sets, for example. 
And what we tend to do is we tend to use a lot of C. You know, for if we do need to do number crunching or encoding, we tend to use C, and they're excellent interfaces, you know, towards C, where you can just embed your C threads in your Erlang VM. We call them NIFs, and we then use you know, Erlang's concurrency model to handle all of the orchestration, all of the delegation of the tasks and the jobs, and the aggregation of the results. While you know the really you know CPU intensive work is done with you know, machine code or with well, or with C with programming languages compiled to machine code. Other areas, uh, graphics. Uh, you know, go to any Erlang website or you know, any website you know run by a company which does Erlang. Uh, you, you'll realize, uh, you know, we're not that good at web development. We're not that good at front ends. Even though it, it's ideal for the web, you know, I think there are very few tools and libraries which allow you to do nice, elegant front ends and, and web front ends. It's ideal for REST APIs. There's a really good library called Web Machine, which has, you know, can scale massively. And in those areas, Cowboy is another excellent uh, example of, you know, using it for web but not for interfaces or websites itself. So you mentioned the tool chain a couple of times, and you talked about sort of real-time debugging. But I'm wondering if Erlang lends itself to TDD, what are the frameworks like? There are two frameworks which are widely used. And uh, the bigger framework is a framework called Common Test. And it's actually used you know, by Ericsson to test Seco, uh, so to test all of its mobile base stations, and that's more to test you know systems. You then have EUnit, which is you know a lightweight unit testing framework, which you use um, which you use on a on a module basis or even on an application basis. And thirdly, you've got a tool called QuickCheck. There is an open source variant called Proper. QuickCheck and Proper, what they do is provide uh, property based testing where you go in and you create a model of your system. And so assume you're testing an API. What you do is you say, okay, this API will take integers between 1 and 100 as a first argument, and it will take a string of up to 255 characters. And what QuickCheck and Proper do, it's still start generating random sequence of tests. So instead of having one or two tests, you know, every time you run it, you'll run tens of thousands of tests. And, you know, when it becomes really powerful is when it starts, you start running and picking up on real borderline test cases you wouldn't use with, you know, conventional approaches. Do you have anything similar for Ruby? There are a few property-based testing frameworks for Ruby. Uh, Generative is one, and Rantly is another, but they're not to the same level. And I'd say they're not yeah. widely used. The the idea yeah. of property-based testing isn't yeah. widely used in Ruby. No. Mm. I mean, if you look at QuickCheck, it is a commercial product. You, you've got QuickCheck CI available uh, for open source projects. But you, then again, you've had you know, university professors work on it for well over a decade now. And it's solid. It will pick up race conditions, concurrency errors. It's being used you know, within the automotive industry to test code, it's being used you know, to test radio base stations. So it is incredibly powerful, but it's not for the faint of heart. You, know, you pick up a lot of bugs, which you would otherwise not see, but it's almost as much effort in writing your quick check properties as it is in writing your code, it's the code itself. I would argue that most of that effort goes into the thought of figuring out the properties and that all of that effort pays off in the code itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what, what happens is you usually you know you usually have two people looking at a particular protocol or problem 
And so you end up getting two views of your system. And when you're testing and you're running your quick check properties, I'd say about half of the half of the issues you discover are in the quick check properties themselves. The other half are in the code. So yeah, code-wise, it's not that much, but um, the thought process which goes into it is excellent, and it actually forces people to you know to think and reason you know about the program in a, in a completely different way, and you know and that's ideal. That's how we do test-driven development here at Erlang Solutions. Yeah, in that sense, property testing fits with the Erlang model of not ignoring failures, not ignoring edge cases, reasoning about far more than the happy path. Exactly, that's correct, yeah. And I think, you know, we could go into stories over the strangest borderline cases which, you know, were discovered, which through quick check, where you, you ended up, you know, generating buffer overflows when, you know, following very particular patterns or even you know bugs in uh, Mnesia. Uh, so Mnesia is a distributed database which comes with Erlang. Um, Mnesia has been in production for I'd say 15 years. It's been used for over 15 years. Uh, you've got you know millions of users and it's you know, millions of queries. There are systems which handle millions of queries a day. And despite that, you know, as they were looking at running you know Erlang on machines with more cores you actually started getting true parallelism in your program in that processes each running on their individual cores were running in parallel and that gave life to very strange race conditions which you know no one looking at the code was able to uh, address and 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 discover they wrote quick check properties and they immediately discovered race conditions among free processes which developers in over a decade had not been able to figure out and address and solve and I think one of the things we have not mentioned, you know, when it comes to QuickCheck is the ability to do shrinking. When QuickCheck finds a system not behaving the way it should, so returning a value different than the intended one, you know, you say, you know, a string, it could be a string of any, any size. You, you go in and you start, you know, you pass in a string with a thousand characters. What it does is tries to shrink that string to the minimal common denominator. And once it's done it, you know, it will give you back that minimal common denominator. So you know, assume that you know, a string with the character zero zero causes your, 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 your function to crash. Uh, there's a good chance your know, quick check will manage to reduce a string with a thousand characters, of which you know, there might be two zero zeros in there, down to the zero zeros. Clearly, most of your programming life is Erlang. I'm curious if there's anything else that's on your uh, on your horizon is there are there any other languages or technologies that you find yourself fascinated by right right now right now uh, very much elixir and that's one area where we're doing a lot of well what we're looking into which is built on the Erlang VM and i think it's maybe not Erlang per se which is fascinating but i think the semantics of the Erlang programming language so, yeah, another thing which really fascinates me is kind of large-scale distributed computing, and that's really where my head is these days as well. You know, we're trying to think, you know, what do we do with the Erlang ecosystem and the Erlang VM, and where do we want it to be in uh, 2020? And one of the ideas we're playing with is actually adding a soft switch to the Erlang virtual machine and then using uh, software-defined networking techniques uh, such as OpenFlow to set up and tear down connections among different Erlang VMs. So, you know, try to picture, you know, spawning off, you know, 30,000 Erlang VMs. Um, it takes a few milliseconds if you're using Erlang on Zen and have enough hardware to do it. 
And as these airline VMs start communicating with each other, you optimize the connectivity between the VMs based on uh, layer two and layer three traffic. With this, um, you're basically able to, you know, to create networks with, you know, tens of thousands of airline nodes and optimize, you know, the data traffic between them uh, based on either latency or bandwidth. And I think we're putting in a research proposal to try to get grant and funding to make them a reality. And we're working with on a project called Flow Forwarding, which is an open flow switch, the link switch. And that has been integrated in the Ling Erlang virtual machine, which is an instance of Erlang on Zen running. And you know, they're doing tests in that space right now. But still a lot of work and a lot of research still needs to go into it. But you know, the, the idea is there and it's, yeah, it's the idea of massively scalable you know, distributed systems. So that, that's really where my passion lies you know, these days. Francesco, I was wondering, as the founder of Erlang Solutions, you mentioned that you don't have to worry about language maintenance and you don't have to finance that, which must be really nice compared to Clojure and Scala. Uh, but you do do a lot of work in the community. What is the Erlang community like? It's If you go to any Erlang events, what you'll see is you know, you'll find, you know, especially in Sweden, you'll find your know, students studying university, really excited about Erlang, all the way up to people who you know, used to work with Erlang at Ericsson you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, who've now retired. So it's incredibly diverse and it's incredibly wide. And it's um, and also Erlang being so specific, I mean, just take you know, Erlang Solutions. I think we're about 100 employees right now, and I would guess we, we have about 20 nationalities represented uh, within the company. So it's yeah, very open, very friendly community. I think the focus is around the airline mailing list, where a lot of the debates and discussions take place and where a lot of people go in and ask for help. There is a website called Airline Central with a chat and forums, you know, for those who don't, yeah, who, who, who prefer, you know, alternative ways. Uh, it also has a huge collection of tutorials. And also very, very, we have a lot of uh, researchers and a lot of academics attending our events. You will have, you know, speakers and attendees from, you know, many universities. And I, I would guess probably, you know, 10 to 15% of all, all the events are attended by academics, PhD students and regular university students. It's, a, it's an incredibly high number, you know, compared to most of the other events I've been to. Cool. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Everyone gets, you know, described as friendly and approachable. And I think, yeah, it's up to you to judge when you start looking at Erlang, playing around with it, you know, see if you get the help you need. So when am I going to be able to write iPhone apps in Erlang? I'm not sure, you know, we really want to go down that route. Uh, we ha have, I, I, I do admit, played a lot with the idea. Yeah, and we've played with the idea of having a virtual machine where you have only one instance of the Erlang VM running on, on an iPhone or, or, or on a cell phone, on a smartphone. And then all the different apps do a bit of time sharing on that VM, which would mean you, know, you add security in there. But I think it's probably a race, you know, we've lost right now. It's, uh, you know, partially because it has to do with user interfaces. Uh, on the other hand, you, know, you, you, you buy a Parallela board, you'll find Erlang installed on it. It's ideal for the Raspberry Pi. A lot of people are using it on Raspberry Pis and, you know, smaller embedded devices. That's you know where maybe user interfaces aren't critical, so you want to maybe run a, a web server on your Raspberry Pi. Erlang's ideal for it. 
I was only half serious, but that was a great answer. Yeah. Yeah, so you can write the back end of your iPhone app in Erlang and have it be very highly available. Yeah, having said that, a lot of the server-side code is in a lot of iPhone apps, popular iPhone apps out there is Erlang. And then I could mention Whisper, uh, the secret social network, or you know, WhatsApp is another, you know, just to pick two examples out of there. You know, all of their backend is all written in Erlang. I actually really like the fact that you don't jump immediately to, well, we have this language, so so we have to use it for all of the things. You're very focused, it sounds like, on tackling the problems that it's best suited to. I, that's correct. I think we've been around the block a few times. I mean, the language has been around for 20 years. So I'd say we've burnt our fingers a few times and we've done our mistakes and we've learned from them. And we're now looking forward and, you know, try to leverage our strengths and, you know, whilst being aware of our weaknesses. That sounds like a great conclusion. <laughs> yep. Let's go ahead and get to some picks. Avdi, do you have some picks for us? I guess my first pick is sort of a practice uh, rather than an individual thing. There is more out there that we can learn about as programmers than we could ever have time for. You know, there are all these languages, Erlang is one of many, and there are all these technologies. And lately I've been more and more impressed uh, with the idea that I'm never going to have time to learn all the, the things that I want to learn or that I found interesting or I thought, you know, oh, I should dabble with that sometime or I should try that out. And so the other day, I kind of started thinking really pragmatically and seriously about this and went over my mental list of programming languages that I've always thought, oh, yeah, I'll learn that language someday. And I really went down it very critically and did some triage. You know, I did some mental triage and decided, you know, okay, this this is something that I need to learn. You know, I, I came up with what are my some some broad ideas of what my goals are as a technologist and then went down that that list and thought, okay, is this something that, you know, learning it will advance me towards my goals? Or is this something where I just think I should learn it because it, it looks nifty or because my friends like it or something like that? And a lot of the decisions are based not on like what practical project am I going to use this for, but, but more like in what way will learning this language stretch my brain? And is it a way that I need uh, my brain stretched right now? Or is it a way that I've already had my brain stretched and maybe it's time to to stretch in a different direction now. So I spent some time on that. I wrote a blog post about it where I kind of listed uh, the languages I wound up with. And, and yes, Erlang is on that list. And uh, I also, and then a, a longer sampling of a lot of the stuff that I had to kind of toss off the list because, you know, looking at it uh, very frankly, I realized it was not uh, something that was going to advance me towards my goals. So I guess I'm not sure how to sum this up. But it's basically the practice of being honest with yourself about what you really have time for and getting serious about sitting down and studying a few things rather than playing with this and playing with that and never really um, going anywhere with it. So I'm, I'm really trying to do that now. Uh, and I'll, I'll put a link to the blog post in the show notes. And related to that, I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the episode, but uh, the list that I came up with, I hadn't actually intended it to be uh, sequential. But Smalltalk happened to be at the top of the list. I've always wanted to get deeper into Smalltalk and understand uh, the, the Alan Kay's ideas that really sort of poured into Ruby. And it wound up just sort of randomly at the top of the list, but I decided, what the heck, let's start at the top. So for the past few days, I've been studying uh, Smalltalk via Faro Smalltalk, and Faro just had a, uh, a release 4.0. And uh, it's getting really nice. It's it's a uh, an open-source Smalltalk VM that uh, you can run on any platform 
and uh, there are some good resources out there for learning it. And it's it's uh, if anybody's familiar with Squeak, it's based on the Squeak project. But rather than being like sort of a big happy sandbox where everybody threw every possible little like toy into, it's more focused on uh, professional developers. And uh, I've really really been enjoying that. I uh, I also did a little blog post with a video of some of the more exciting things that I've found so far. Uh, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So that's uh, Pharaoh Small Talk. And that's it for me. All right, Coraline, what are your picks? I have a couple of picks today. The first is a Nebula award-winning sci-fi novel called Babel 17. It was written by Samuel Delaney, and it's kind of old. It was, written, it was published in 1966. But one of the things that attracted me to the book is that it provides uh, – it does an exploration of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which I've, which I've talked about in a couple of talks and that basically posits the theory that spoken language influences and constrains our thinking. The book deals with a language that is actually weaponized. It's called Babel 17, and it figures in a large-scale conflict between a sort of Federation-style government and a rebel movement. Um, the language itself is interesting, and we get to see over the course of the novel how it influences the thought and ability of the story's hero. Interestingly, the language lacks pronouns and has no conception of the word I. The idea of a weaponized language that Delaney explored in this novel was later used also in Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. So I'll provide a link to the uh, to the Amazon page for Babel 17. My other pick, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a really big fan of classic movies. And Turner Classic Movies this month is featuring a celebration of Orson Welles, who would have turned 100 on May 6th of this year. So their series includes his famous noir films, as well as Shakespeare and other literary adaptations. And I strongly recommend that you uh, take a look at some of the, the roots of great cinema and uh, check out Orson Welles on Turner Classic Movies. All right. Uh, Jessica, do you have some picks for us? I have two picks. One of them is a really quick repeat pick because we talked about Quick Check and Erlang not long ago. And... Francesco mentioned Erlang CI. So for that, I recommend John Hughes' talk at Code Mesh last year, which I'll provide a link to. Okay, now we've got the important pick. And this is a pick that I've been waiting on for an episode that was worthy of it. But if you like to stretch your brain, then you should get the book Vehicles. It's a tiny little book. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it was written a couple decades ago by Valentino Breitenberg. The book is a thought experiment. It asks, what if we built some sort of little car with a sensor and a wheel or two sensors and a wheel or we cross the input between the sensor and the wheel so that they go at different speeds under different stimuli? And it builds this up, just these simple little imaginary vehicles. It builds them up until you're modeling a human brain, really. And at every step of the way, the progression makes sense. It illustrates its principle of downhill synthesis, uphill analysis. It's easier to understand what you're making than to come later and figure out how it works. As we have all seen, if we've ever gotten a job working on a legacy application. This book, it's a thought experiment, so it depends where you are, what you'll get out of it. But after 25 pages, I suddenly understood religion, which is kind of impressive. Okay, that's my favorite pick ever, the end. From my end, uh, I've got a book uh, which uh, Chad Fowler actually recommended. We were having a conversation uh, at Code Mesh last year over how as CTOs, you know, you have to have crazy ideas and then turn these crazy ideas into reality. And I was, we were discussing, you know, my vision of you know, Erlang in 2020. And he went in and actually suggested a book called uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. 
and it's basically looking at you know innovation and thinking out of the box and how you know you go in and you create something new so the whole idea of going not from you know, from zero to one and not from one you know to to n at least you know the parts i've read so far are very inspiring and i think it's a must read for any entrepreneur or you know anyone who wants to get into the startup world all right i've got a couple of podcasts that i want to pick for the show um the first one i've picked on the show before but i it's just gotten so good um it's the code newbie podcast uh saran's not on today but she does that podcast and it is awesome another one that's really fun to listen to is an npr show called ask me another and uh, i've been enjoying that it's just kind of a it's a word game kind of show but it's it's fun to listen to and, and get stuff out of and the last podcast i'm going to pick is called startups for the rest of us and that's by rob walling and mike Tabor. And it's pretty terrific as well. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to hear two experienced people talking about awesome stuff uh, related to their businesses and what they've learned and giving good advice on how to uh, push your business ahead, then uh, I have to recommend Startups for the Rest of Us. So those are my picks. Uh, I also want to remind you to go check out Ruby Remote Conf, rubyremoteconf.com. And uh, unless we have any other announcements, let's wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.